Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf. I'm your host. I'm in New York City. Also in New York City, we have um, our guest, uh, one of our two guests today, Lori Garrett, Pulitzer Prize-winning author and regular contributor here and virtually everywhere on the uh, pandemic and all pandemics. Hi, Lori. Hi, David. Um, a little bit further out on the island on which Lori is on the tip of in Brooklyn, uh, uh, we have Ryan Goodman. How are you doing, Ryan? Pretty well, David. No complaints. No complaints. Well, that's very positive. And I guess in Washington, D.C., we have another of our favorites, Dr. Kavita Patel, who was a uh, senior official in the Obama White House, handled a lot of healthcare things, is also a practicing physician. How are you doing, Kavita? Good, David. I've got my Texas background in honor of, of my home state. <laughs> yeah, no, I see their hook'em horns. Exactly. Uh, uh, I'm increasing the Longhorn, you know, loyalty to the deep state. So, yeah. Well, I'm not sure that that's really one of our areas of big following. So, um, <laughs> you might be surprised. <laughs> yeah. Surprised. Well, and not you know, it does seem to be at the center of what we're talking about here today. I thought we'd just have you know conversation about the things that are in the news. It's okay with you, Ryan. I thought I'd start with one question uh, that I'll, I'll I'll offer to Lori and Kavita, then you can offer one, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, but, Lori, I was struck this morning um, as I was reviewing news on Twitter, which is really sort of where I get news, um, th- uh, that you um, had put out a, a, a kind of intense and disturbing thread about the suppression of data. In particular, you were, you were worried um, about the degree to which um, the CDC was shutting down some sources of data, and I subsequently noted that they seem to have had a reversal on part of this. Uh, and so I thought maybe we should start with you at an update on how bad you think our data suppression problem is. Yeah, well, yesterday it came to light that Health and Human Services had discreetly circulated a memo that stipulated, among other things, that all tracking of COVID cases that were hospitalized would cease to be collected by the CDC. And instead, that tracking was going to pass through HHS headquarters in Washington to a private company, a small private company none of us had ever heard of before, that claimed to have the capacity to Um, massage the data in more interesting ways and make it uh, more useful to the government. Um, And since all aspects of tracking hospital infections of any any kind 
have been the jurisdiction of the CDC for the last several decades. This was shocking. Uh, And it came right on the heels of the president repeatedly saying, uh, if we don't test people, then we don't have big numbers. Uh, So we're testing too much. He said that phrase so many times. Um, And and then finally, uh, the suppression of the CDC's guidelines regarding how to safely reopen schools with the president saying, these guidelines are too tough, the schools can't meet them, I'm telling the CDC to go back to the drawing board on these things and loosen it all up. The sum total of all of this was that it was so appalling that um, four of the past directors of the CDC put out an op-ed denouncing what was going on. Um, And one by one, every public health agency started coming forward. I mean, international associations and scientific groups and so on over the course of late last night as people started to understand what was happening. Um, So I did this early morning deep tweets thread detailing with citations each one of these cuts and um, changes being made by the White House um, with my sort of conclusion that there was really only one way to look at this. It was about Trump trying to get reelected and you make the epidemic look less severe if number one, you don't test a lot of people because there's quote too much testing end quote. And two, you funnel the data on hospitalizations and deaths through a private company that will not make that data available to academic centers, to international investigators, um, to anybody that, uh, that it will be massaged by the company and then returned to Congress or wherever it would go. So um, that sparked an unbelievable response. I've rarely tweeted anything that got retweeted as much as this. Uh, We're talking, you know, tens of thousands of retweets. Um, And then about an hour and a half, two hours ago, the White House said, "Um, we're not going to do that. So they've re-instructed the CDC to go back to collecting hospitalization and death data. Well, that seems like good news, Kavita. Um, And now we can trust all the data that we've got and all of it is exactly right. And um, what a relief because, you know, when I read Lori's um, uh, thread this morning and even before I read Lori's thread um, over the past few days, I was thinking that there was going to be a new category of homicide added to the books called death by data suppression, and that death by data suppression was going to come as different states lied about how many people had this disease and thus made it impossible for people to adequately protect themselves and thus led to people's death and suffering. So do you think we're out of the woods, Kavita? I I wish we were out of the woods. I think Lori's exactly right. And what's sad is that uh, hospitals had been delivering data to that sole source contractor, uh, teletracking health, uh, I believe it was called, uh, for several months now. So it's kind of a, you know, while when we were in the thick of the pandemic, hospitals were doing this kind of separate set of bureaucratic work to send in data. And then that, to Lori's point, that data wasn't even seeing the light of day for other secondary data analysis or investigations or some way to look at it. So to your point, David, just a couple of things. Number number one, 
we still have problems. Even, even if the CDC were kind of at its highest functioning capacity and we were really trying to glean everything we can, we have such abysmal protocols and mechanisms for why certain people, how causes of death are declared. It's actually incredibly heterogeneous compared to what I think most Americans realize. You would think a death is a death. And actually, to be honest, all we had to do is look at George Floyd's killing to see kind of what some different autopsies and how that could be interpreted. So no, we're not out of the woods. Um, and, and the uh, case of the data scientist in Florida is, is another example, which I think is actually more common than is probably realized. And I've had friends who are on the inside of public health departments in very blue states also. This is not a blue-red issue, but are in states where the states are feeling under pressure to not give such bad news. So there is a lot of kind of massaging of the data, which is why... I said about three or four months ago, I said the death toll that we're documenting and citing every day on those tickers on the news um, and on outlets, I said that's woefully underestimating the true death count from COVID. And then perhaps some somebody also, the other thing that's emerging, David, that we have very little data on that I'm troubled by and, and would be interested just if we have time, but I think that the kind of even short and long-term effects of COVID have not really been fully understood. And we have this study out of Italy with like 900, uh, you know, 191 patients post-hospitalization. We have some studies from China. I mean, this is very serious in terms of what the implications are for being COVID positive, even if you were not hospitalized. And we should, in this day of electronic health records and technology, be able to harness that information, and we are not. And and I, I can't tell you, you know, people are calling for a 9-11 commission. I hope we have something stronger than that with teeth, because people need to be held accountable on, on both sides of the aisle, frankly. Here, here. I agree completely. I would I would add to that, I mean, strong words, but absolutely spot on. I would add to it that we don't have support for strategic testing and strategic analysis and data collection. So it's, it's, you know, it's one thing to say, Hey, everybody drive to the Walmart, sit there in your car for five hours. Somebody will swab you. And then two weeks later, we'll give you the results. That is absolutely useless. It it serves no function. It doesn't help the individual because it's two weeks of infecting others uh, you, you, what, what's the point? Um, it doesn't help the community in any way. It doesn't offer any real help and guidance on anything. What we don't have is really strategic testing where, for example, I'm writing up a thing right now for the New York Times where we're talking about how do you decide if it's safe to reopen your school? And then as the school is open, at what point, what triggers are you looking for to say, oops, we got to close this class or this class or rethink this way we're doing things because we're seeing some dangerous trends. If you haven't done any kind of cleverly uh, compiled testing, creating what we call a cohort that can be strategic and gives you information such as the baseline rate of infection among school teachers before schools reopen was X. The baseline of third graders was Y based on a cohort sampling. 
um, the baseline for the cafeteria workers, the baseline for the janitors. Now, three weeks into school opening, where are, where are those cohorts? Have we seen any increase in any of them? And if so, can we ascribe it to anything we're doing in the schools? Are they getting it from the kids? Are the kids giving it to their grandparents? We don't do this. And there have been some studies done, to, to Kavita's point, there have been some studies done to try and estimate what burden of death is excess death over prior years in given communities that has not been officially ascribed to COVID. So here in New York, it's roughly 19 to 20% additional death burden that the state accepts is likely to be COVID death. Uh, but because the individual was never officially diagnosed, died at home, died in a nursing home, um, you know, perhaps never had an actual COVID test, uh, even hospitalized ICU patients may not have had at any point an actual COVID test. Not all states are doing that kind of data. In fact, they are doing the opposite. They're trying to, as we said, trying to downplay the numbers. Ryan? Sure. So um, just don't want to, I don't want to leave it um, exactly where we have it on the CDC's reversal or the reversal of the administration with respect to the CDC's collection of the data, because according to CNN today, they're saying that the CDC has also added language to the page announcing that they will not be updating this data past July 14th. So I'm not sure uh, we're out of the woods on it. Um, I guess I just wanted to drill for, down. For people watching, yeah. listening at home, I want to say that I've just watched the top of Lori and Kavita's heads explode off of their right. bodies. I, I, I will say, <laughs> Ryan, I, I didn't want to throw like another bomb into all of this, but I agree with Ryan that there can be a reversal and still yet the right thing is not done. And that's, I think, you know, that that's exactly what you're seeing is, is, is happening. So yes, I have. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess I wanted to just drill down exactly as to where uh, both of you, Lauren and Kavita, were at in terms of saying more about the, the size, the magnitude of mortality currently that's going on and other dimensions of uh, COVID. So, Lori, when you were talking about the 19 to 20% in New York, what does that mean in terms of looking at the numbers that are being reported on CNN, Fox, uh, or MSNBC each night versus what the actual number of deaths are? I think it would be helpful to say a little bit more about that. And then, Kavita, I think it would be good to talk a little bit more exactly about what you said let's talk more about, which is the other kinds of health conditions that people are grappling with um, as long haul, quote unquote, I guess is the name that they're giving themselves in a certain sense, long haul uh, COVID survivors. Um, and uh, what we know about that in terms of prevalence as well, not just what the, what the symptoms might be. So um, the, there's two categories of COVID related, but not officially diagnosed deaths. One is people that actually died of COVID. And the other is people who died because the COVID-strapped health system mm. did not take them in uh, to manage whatever their other health issue may be. Um, for example, uh, one of my neighbors, uh, his wife suddenly deteriorated with very severe dementia and was hastened 
greatly by their being cut off from their children. And he had to institutionalize her, uh, but then the institution would not allow him to visit. She deteriorated so rapidly that her life was in danger. Uh, When he tried to visit her, he couldn't. She died. We don't know cause of death in the nursing home. And he just laid down and died 24 hours later. Now, is that a COVID death? Is that a a stroke? Is that, what is that? You can go through a huge list of uh, seniors who have succumbed in the last four or five months under lockdown because their home care nursing is not coming anymore or their routine visit to some form of special care is no longer happening. And so, and, and they're cut off from family, they're cut off from friends, they just lay down and die. This is terrible. Now, as far as the actual COVID goes, um, you know, this requires investigation. There has to be funding to get in there, look, dig, figure it out, and determine why numbers are being missed. Um, where are they dying? What are they being uh, described as? We're, we're, here in New York, we actually found that a lot of people were being essentially post-mortem diagnosed by the morticians. Their bodies were showing up at funeral parlors, and funeral directors were testing them because of their self-protection. They needed to know which patients might have virus, or not patients, cadavers might have virus. And uh, it was in this way that a few key funeral parlors drew attention to the fact that they were receiving bodies that had never been diagnosed uh, as having COVID. Um, I think that every epidemic has some percentage of this. Certainly, we never really know with absolute accuracy in any year how many people get the flu, how many die of the flu, how many have long-term health effects because of having the flu. We never really have those numbers. We have ballpark guesses. But if you look at today's guesstimate of what the total of COVID cases are, and then increase it in, you know, in a mental calculus by 20%, you're probably getting a lot closer to the reality of the scale of our epidemic. So not 140, but um, 165, 170? I honestly think we're going to hit 200,000 deceased in August. Wow. Uh, so, Kavita, Brian had a question for you. Yeah, uh, no, I can answer it briefly because I, I, I will also include for our deep state listeners the link to the JAMA article that I was poorly citing, but it, it, it's, it tells you what little we know about kind of what I'll call, you know, longer term consequences past an initial COVID infection. And, you know, up to 60% of patients in a follow-up study in Italy had fatigue, but large numbers of them with shortness of breath, uh, joint pain. I mean, things that aren't even on the list for initial symptoms are symptoms. And I, just to bring it home, I was in clinic all day yesterday had a 36-year-old mom of six, Latin American, 36 years old, diagnosed with COVID three months ago with initial symptoms um, of like just GI stuff. And now we actually recognize that is a symptom that you should be looking for, but we didn't know that three months ago. Diagnosed PCR positive and still getting PCR tests, even though I, I kind of put a stop to that. I said, we know this is COVID and you've got six children. Have they been tested? By the way, the answer was no. 
So that tells you why, to Lori's point, we're just not even, not just deaths, we're not even di- you know, diagnosing the real cases. Uh, and she's got three months later, persistent GI problems. And she literally said to me, what can I do? And I said, and I, I got in a team huddle with the other doctors who were there. And, and we basically said, like, there's nothing we can do. We're just going to have to treat the symptoms, but there's nothing we can do. And, and, I, and I worry a lot that just to take it to kind of a policy level, same week, we get a report about 5.4 million Americans losing their health care because of job losses. And, and yet we have this promise that like, oh, if you have COVID-associated illnesses, don't worry, your care is free. No, I call BS on that because what are we going to do when months later, you know, I don't even have a diagnosis code mm-hmm. for a lot of this. And so to, to Ryan's question, and then, to, you know, just to, just to bring like a little bit of good news, I think people, I actually think, Lori, your kind of like tweet storm. And I, I do think that this is the time where those of us who are kind of a little bit more vigilant, we, it, it's our responsibility to bring these issues forward and in a way shame people into responding. And I think that's exactly what we're going to have to do, Ryan, with thinking about longer term consequences. We need to really ask why is it that I can get better information on Twitter about chronic complications to COVID than I can from, and I'll, I'll, I'll say something that I know a lot of people don't want to say, than our own NIH. I know that, you know, it's to me just a disservice all around, um, or the CDC, the MMWR, Lori, which Lori knows very well, the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, which really is something that would come out weekly from the CDC and would try to be what we use to get cutting edge clinical information. It is months behind on telling us any of these statistics, Ryan. I, 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 as a medical student, I would use the MMWR to learn about GRID, kind of gay-related infectious disease, what we called before HIV. Lori, you know, Lori wrote the book on this, but I, I, I shudder to think how much we're doing in the dark because we just have no information. There's so much important in what you just said. And just to put in a couple of zingers there, the CDC's uh, daily press dump and their morbidity mortality weekly report and their emerging infectious diseases. If you go through them for the last five months, there's almost no COVID there. <laughs> so it's just, it's shocking. And it clearly is censorship because there's smart scientists in the CDC. I'm sure they're promulgating data. It's just not reaching the light of day. And, um, that, and, it, you know, when you compare that to past epidemics, I mean, the Ebola epidemic, which wasn't even in the United States of America, would dominate throughout the actual outbreak in West Africa, would dominate the MMWR, would dominate daily briefings. We would have daily press conferences from the CDC dissecting the latest with an epidemic that was thousands of miles away. So this is an abdication of all responsibility, and it's just insane. And then to add to the symptoms, the, the long-term, um, you know, I saw this with SARS in 2003. I was in the epidemic, and then I went back two years later to see how were people doing and, and what had they learned from SARS in all the same countries. And I was shocked by how many patients I had come to know in 2003 were still suffering acute depression and described it as feeling like a giant cloud was in their brain and it wouldn't go away. Um, And many also had a longstanding um, 
almost rheumatoid arthritis, that feeling of your, your knuckles and your knees are just in agonizing pain all the time, uh, and, uh, and kidney problems. And all of these are emerging now with SARS-CoV-2. Uh, uh, and, um, and I think that the depression issue is very complicated because um, depression and malaise go hand in hand. You feel fatigued. You feel run down. You also tend to be depressed. Are you depressed because you feel fatigued? Or are you fatigued because you're depressed? Or are the two you know, running in parallel track? And we haven't really seen a good analysis of any of that yet. So I have uh, 1,000 follow-up questions um, to what you guys have. We'll let you have a couple. I've both both been saying, yeah, no, I want Ryan to have his his shot here too. But, you know, I'm going to sort of lump a couple of them together and then both of you can speak to them as, as, as you will. One is with regard to the data, one thing neither of you really addressed is that we do seem to have the problem at the federal level, and, and Kavita, you touched upon it, but it's compounded at the state level, where we actually have states that are still making shockingly anti-science decisions and seem to be eager to suppress the data. You mentioned Florida. We have the governor of Georgia making a you know, statement yesterday uh, outlawing um, requirements to wear masks. Uh, we, we, we saw this in a number of other states. And frankly, um, one of the things that suggests this is going to get worse is that the data in the, in the, in the peaking states now is so bad that... I think I read yesterday that Miami is now out of ICU beds um, and that there were dozens of counties across the South that are out of ICU beds. This is a scandal. It's going to cause pain. And um, it, it's, it seems clear that there is going to be an incentive for politicians to suppress this data further. And so... You know, let's let we go on this one first to Kavita and then to Lori and then we'll go to, to Ryan. Yeah, no, David, that's right. And I think uh, it's hard to know in talking to some of the institutions and, and kind of people inside the health systems in those states, they have already kind of expressed frustration that, you know, even even with kind of robust reporting by hospitals to the states or to the CDC or to anybody that the states are in a precarious situation because they're being told by governor's offices, you know, we need to see everything before you release it. And, and then there's automatic updates of some of these data tables, but funny enough, you would think that you couldn't really fudge or manipulate that, but we've already seen in Florida how that that's actually happening And so you have to, it begs the question, like, what really is the truth? And that's why we have to have some, it's, it's why I'm a little frustrated personally that we haven't had more kind of, we've had hearings, but we haven't had investigate. I'm a creature of Washington. I I haven't seen enough to go hard after this. And I also feel like, uh, just to your point about kind of, I, I reflected on this. I feel like this attack on science has started for a while. It, for me, it, started with climate change and kind of this like 
cognitive dissonance around the facts related to climate change. And it seems to have only escalated as of late to which the mask phenomenon seems to be unclearly still to this day, so political that I've, that I also see it as a failure of the science community. Like what, what is it that we're doing where if you're trying to be fact-based and evidence kind of driven, that somehow you're a liberal and, and I, you know, it's candidly (laughs) troubling to me. And I'm, I'm, I'm personally deeply disturbed and feel like if this is a signal, didn't start with COVID, I think it started long before that now everything is subject to qualitative litmus testing, then how are we ever going to hunt? Like, you know, we're big people. How do we understand what the fact versus the myths are? And that's why I think I I, I worry that the future, I worry that I'll be on deep state radio in six months and we're going to say we've had, you know, 300,000 deaths and, and it's now just kind of not, it, nothing has sunk in. That's what I'm worried about. Oh, God, this is so depressing. Um, <laughs> and this is part of the problem. When we come on together, Kavita, you and I, and we just <laughs> we're going to do feed no. off each other's. No. Uh, but but, but we're, both, we're both, of course, telling the truth, you know? And uh, what this I, is, I This is to, a symptom called COVID discussion induced malaise. <laughs> or or, or uh, rage. Um, well, there's two, there's two aspects to this that we haven't touched on yet because. If you suppress or uh, mess around with hospitalization data and it and we know it to not be reliable, then there's two things you can't do well. One is clinical trials. So it's really hard to know. Is remdesivir really uh, you know shortening the, the time that people are in hospital? You don't know that if you don't get hospital data. And you can go down the whole list of dexamethasone or hydroxychloroquine or whatever drugs you want to talk about. If you're not getting good, solid data out of the hospitals, then you don't have any clinical information. Um, And we don't, you know, in many ways, because we don't have a cure, so we're dealing with incrementally beneficial medicines, if you will. We need to know what, how they perform, not in perfect conditions, not at Johns Hopkins Prime Hospital, not at Mass General. We need to know how they perform in overcrowded inner city hospitals, rural clinics, you know, real world. And we don't have that data as a matter of drug company investigation. We only get that data if we have access to general hospital data. And the second aspect of that that I think is going to be really scary is the vaccine. You know, the less reliable any of our data is, the harder it's going to be to convince that 24, 25% of the population already says no matter what, they won't get vaccinated. It's going to be very hard to convince them. And all the fence post sitters that are worried about, is it safe, is it safe, um, that this is a real home run vaccine if they don't trust the data and they don't believe where it's coming from and they don't, and, you know, Moderna who's the front runner at the moment in the United States uh, running head on head against a vaccine in China at the moment. Um, Moderna is doing science by press release. So we're, we're getting, you know, these very carefully massaged by the legal and PR department numbers and information. Even the one paper they've published in a bona fide medical literature was obviously massaged 
by their legal and medical departments. And um, sure. so much so that, you know, some reporters even included that in their stories, right? And even then, what we see when we dissect the data is they're just telling us what happened with a group of 45 people, all of whom were under 35 years of age, all of whom had ideal body weights, all of whom self-reported as being athletic, uh, one of whom was African-American, one of whom was Latino, all the rest white. I think we just looked at an employee pool of Moderna volunteering to have a phase uh, two trial. And this was not a sampling of anything relevant to the rest of the world. And this is how we're having to deal with data. And often, you know, when we dare to even ask for the raw data, we're treated like, how dare you? You know, you'll hear from our lawyers. Ryan? Um, So I want to turn to the question of opening schools. Um, So we actually happened to have a uh, Just Security staff meeting before the podcast, and I said, I'm going to be able to ask uh, Lori Garrett and Kavita Patel any questions. What do you all think? So this is the, like the, one of the top questions was about the opening of schools and that debate. And so here's kind of one of the questions that came out of that um, discussion. So when it comes to opening schools, everyone talks in abstract terms about a balance between health on one side and socialization uh, benefits for children on the other for, or for being back in school. And so one thought was, could you each uh, speak about what exactly socialization might look like in a properly socially distanced school environment. It could be valuable for parents and policymakers to hear, for example, if in fact there are, like it'll be a disturbing form of interaction that children would be allowed to have if uh, the school were practicing proper safeguards so that maybe when we think about the balance between health on one side and socialization of children on the other, people start, need to start thinking a little bit more concretely about what socialization looks like when you open a school in the middle of a pandemic versus waiting until later in the, when the pandemic's maybe subsiding uh, to open schools. That was one of the questions that people thought hadn't really been in the national conversation as much and would love to hear from uh, you two about it. There's a long list of questions related to reopening schools for which we don't have clear answers yet. That's one of them. Um, We've never done this before. Tell kids, how do you tell six-year-olds? You can come in the classroom, you sit over here, you sit six feet away over here, you you can't ever play together on the playground. Um, You can't do all the things that kids do, punch each other, hug each other, throw things at each other. Maybe you can throw things if at six you're strong enough to throw six feet. Um, But, We've never tried this before. Um, I've been thinking of what are some of the metaphors for this moment in terms of children, because clearly it's not good for them to be socially isolated from peers for extended periods of time. And especially the very young preschooler ages, these are key juncture points where you learn the difference between me and us, between we and you. You learn what constitutes negotiating and what constitutes an unfair fit (laughs) and all these things because you you can't only bounce off parents all the time. It's really crucial for a child to learn 
dominance and power structure, all of that, when it's three-year-old to three-year-old, four-year-old to four-year-old. But the only metaphor I can really think of is when uh, I'm old enough that uh, I grew up during the nuclear war era, when we were uh, being told to duck and cover and trying to imagine a nuclear bomb and what would be left of our, our world. Uh, after this bomb dropped, and would we ever see our parents again? Would we reunite? What, would we say goodbye to all the other kids on the playground? What What is this all about? And I remember that very distinctly that there were times when I would feel fear, and I'd look around and my fellow students, and I could tell the other 10-year-olds were all scared too. And we didn't have anyone to turn to to say, here's our questions. You know, when they would say to us, Look for the flash of the nuclear bomb. When you see that, duck and cover. We all knew if you see the flash, you're dead. <laughs> duck and cover for what? And I think if I'm today, if I'm an eight or nine-year-old and all day long I'm hearing my parents bickering and trying to handle being in captivity with me and, um, you know, and I don't have any other kid to bounce off of except online. This has, this has to be hurting. This has to be painful. But we can't balance it against your hypothetical because we have no basis for doing that. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what would be the comparator? It's never been done before. And, and Ryan, I'll offer, because I've had to, um, I've been working, it's been fascinating to me to see how little kind of uh, guidance or support schools are getting in making these decisions. I think, you know, even, even, whether it's Fairfax County, which got a lot of publicity because of the president's denouncement of like the alternating uh, schedules or, or even schools that have been incredibly like disciplined and tried to follow CDC guidance, et cetera. There's just no support for doing what they need to do. And, and the practical answer to your question to build off of Lori is obviously we've never done this before, but everything is going to involve risk and little children. I have, two of them, you can't tell them not to do this or that. It's just not possible. So in those, in those situations, Ryan, having kind of small cohorts where you've accepted that risk, where you even might want to consider consenting the families to that risk, which is what I've been telling some principals of charter schools, you know, you may want to really kind of think about who is, what, what small cohort is my child in so that they can be quickly isolated or that if somebody gets a fever, you don't have to shut the whole school down. You've got it kind of an isolated scenario. And then I think the more critical questions are going to be this, I, I, you know, I feel like I say the same thing every podcast, testing and tracing. We don't have, we only have a fraction of the tracing we need. So I've been encouraging schools, only a third of schools have full-time school nurses. Let that fact sink in, right? So if you're a school and you don't even have an internal in-house health resource, I've told the school principals, um, especially the smaller schools that don't have any like a nurse or anything, I've said, take the six-hour free Hopkins contact tracing course or get somebody to be the designated contact tracer within your school because they may not need to be the functional contact tracer like the county, but they're going to need those skills because they're going to need to figure out how do I isolate a kid when I have no space to even keep them six feet apart. So, and, and unanimously, whether it's high SES, Ryan, like private schools, my children are lucky, they go to private schools, or whether it's in low-income neighborhoods and you're dealing with principals there, they have all unanimously told me that parents who are coming to them begging for schools to be open 
are not necessarily doing it for mental health and socialization and education. They're doing it because they need childcare and they need to go back to work. So what are we, what are we doing to actually deal with like what is truly the Maslow's hierarchy needs of the population we're in. And so that's where, so I've, I have tried to become incredibly practical in saying, all right, let's get like four kids together and those adults and we're going to agree to kind of do last minute childcare because I fall into that category of I can't stay at home and work remotely. So those are the practical questions. And it's a crime to me that we have left the educational system without any support or resources. I heard rumors about the dollars that are being proposed in the next stimulus bill for education support. It's not even, it's nowhere near enough if we are realistically going to try to do what I think we want to try to do at some point. So we only have a couple of minutes. And I I ask her a quick question. What's the longest any one of your children has worn a mask? Yeah, my, it's only been a couple of hours because it's been outside. And so that's, that's the other thing we brought up was that um, I'm now moving towards recommending for like at least six and under, maybe even 10 and under, you know, the hats with the face shields. I mean, there's just, it's, it's bringing up every single one of those practical questions that are essential, but have zero support or guidance on. So we only have a couple of minutes left, but I, but I, and there's thousands more questions that we could ask. Um, but I, but I want to ask uh, sort of two sort of related questions here. Uh, one of them goes to something that, and and it, and it t- all ties into what do we do about this. One of them ties into conversations we've had with Lori over and over in which she said, I still haven't seen from the Democrats any sense that they would handle this much differently. They they say they wouldn't do what Trump would do, um, that they would do it better and more compassionately. Um, but, you know, the, 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 it hasn't been a, you know, super specific. Um, it also, by the way, never addresses the fact that if we were in a flipped situation where those Republican governors thought it was actually politically damaging to a Democratic president for the numbers to run up, that if they'd let the numbers run up on their own watch, you, you could be sure they'd let the numbers run up on, him, on his watch. So the, the, the first question, I'm going to ask you both at once and then you can both answer them. The, the first question is, do we have any better sense that the Democrats have a better way to do this and that things will actually improve? And if so, how? The, the, the flip side is crimes are being committed. And, you know, today Nancy Pelosi said, well, you know that Donald Trump, he's like, he's like one of those guys who drives a car but will never ask for directions. And I was like, holy shit. You know, I have a lot of respect for Nancy Pelosi, but, you know, that's a glib comment. He and people around him and these governors are taking decisions that are leading to the deaths directly of tens of thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of people. And I have no sense that, they, that anybody's trying to stop them or that they will ever be held accountable. So, Lori, then Kavita. Well, you're asking a hell of a question. Um, let me just 
add a couple of sort of observations and then uh, the, the Biden camp has released a somewhat more detailed set of proposals for how they would deal with COVID. So we have a little, there's a little more meat on the bones. It's still not really a strategy. It's more still of a shopping list of things they'd like to get rid of and things they'd like to add to the, the pot. Um, but where, where we're headed rapidly um, is a situation where by November, um, day after election, assuming Biden wins, he's not just going to be dealing with a COVID crisis. We have uh, an influenza crisis that seems to be looming, and there's a strain out there now in China that everybody's paying attention to and very freaked out about in pigs uh, that looks to be highly pathogenic. Uh, And another set of strains of influenza looming out there that are completely drug resistant. So the handful of drugs we have to help soften the blow of uh, flu infection in ICUs is uh, rendered useless. Um, And the other thing that's compounding all of this is that we're now running low on vaccines for pertussis, um, tetanus, uh, measles, um, and HPV. So a lot of the essential armamentarium of public health is starting to run out. And it's not just running out in the United States. It's a global crisis. So we could very well get towards this moment when we want to reopen schools and vaccine-preventable diseases will be resurging alongside of flu and COVID. So I see that November, December, January transition time as a a time when there will be a multidimensional crisis afoot that uh, just on the health side alone, not even getting into the economic consequences, um, that uh, I I just don't know whether it, it will matter whether you call yourself a Democrat or Republican. We're going to be underwater. Yeah, and I'll just, the only thing I want to add to that, David, is that um, I agree with you that we shouldn't just make some automatic assumptions that Democrats will handle it better without asking for that level of detail and accountability. I would say the Biden stance right now is to kind of do nothing, because let's be honest, it's easy. you, You could argue that you could only go downhill if you try to actually kind of go in a back and forth on COVID policy. You've got Ron Klain, who knows more than anybody does about how to kind of organize all of this, but you're not going to see the level of detail that you would probably see if he could assume office soon. Um, But I, I at least have faith that there's people with deep knowledge and background who could come in on day one and really complete those roles. So that's Biden. Democrats, I, I completely agree. I saw Pelosi's comments and I've also seen um, Senator Patty Murray from Washington, Washington put out a very robust kind of vaccine plan and testing plan, but those things are all going to, you know, be just hypotheticals until we actually have either a change in government or some oversight that Congress exerts in a much more rigorous way. Not sure why we're not, you know, probably not worth talking about impeachment and some of the other things because we have an election year. I would say that the other, just on a kind of political note, uh, the bigger kind of problem, I think, coming into this for the governors, we've got, 
you've already seen Ducey and some other governors who had political aspirations, and those are going to go nowhere largely because of COVID. Whitmer might be a byproduct of that too, even though I think she handled things well. And I think what's unfortunate is that if you think about it moving forward, change of power could happen in the White House, change of Senate potentially as well, and everything could swing blue. And you could still have, to your point, what you said is what I predict will happen. You'll have governors who want the new president to look even worse, and they will actively put Americans' health at odds. And I think you'll have to see a very interesting conversation about federalism, which even the Democrats, when I worked on the Affordable Care Act, we were very hesitant to force states to do something. And we were unsuccessful with the Medicaid expansion in the Supreme Court as a point in, in fact. So I think you're going to see an incredible, interesting battle between the feds and the states, no matter what, come January of 2021, especially if the administration changes. Yeah. And if the Democrats don't take back the Senate, exactly. forget it. Forget it. Nothing, <laughs> nothing's going to happen. Exactly. Ryan, um, we, we're sort of out of time here, but I thought maybe you want to have a last word. Um, I guess just, I actually had the exact same question that David just posed in a slightly different way, because I was also going to invite Laurie to speak again about this, because other times you've been on the podcast, you mentioned the Biden lack of specificity. Um, and it's good to do that, because it's good to say we're not in a partisan position here. We just want good decision making. But at the same time, like David says, I think crimes are in a certain sense, it's like crimes are being committed. As long as Biden's policy is the same as the Obama foreign policy, don't do stupid shit. Like that was the quote, don't do stupid shit. It's like, we'll be led by data. We'll be led by scientists. We won't muzzle the CDC. And the president of the United States will communicate clearly as he can with the American people about the risks and what they can do to protect themselves. I mean, that if that's the Biden plan, I just think whatever he inherits on January 20th, we're headed into a better situation, both with the dealing with the virus itself and then dealing with the vaccine and its distribution. Uh, don't do stupid shit. Let, let the scientists and the data lead us uh, through it to some degree. So I, I don't know if I, that's where I kind of end up on that, um, even though obviously getting more into the specifics out of Biden would be better because in some ways he's politicizing it too, not to be specific with us. Um, no, when I hear you say that, what it makes me think of is this sort of embarrassing moment um, when Obama's election the first time resulted in the Nobel Peace Prize being given <laughs> to him. Why? Because he was not George Bush and he was African-American. I mean, it was this whole uh, Europe gone gaga moment. And I think if Biden wins, he'll be received in very much the same spirit. Um, across most of Europe, not Hungary, of course, or Poland, but most of Europe and a lot of the rest of the world as a sort of um, savior. And the expectations will be very high that he will immediately rejoin WHO, that America will take the lead on dealing with COVID, that we will restore one aspect of our foreign policy after another to a more globalization, pro-globalization stance and uh, come up against the populace. And uh, there's a real danger that the expectations will far exceed what, given the damage done by Trump, uh, anybody could conceivably accomplish in the first year or two of office. Well, you, you lived through that, Kavita, because, yeah. you know, as, as good as Obama intended to be, as good as he was as a person, as good as all of you were, you couldn't do everything you wanted to do. 
Yeah, and, and it, you know, it's incredible. It was incredibly frustrating still to this day. Guantanamo aspects of, I mean, you saw how hard the fight on gay marriage was, which you would not have expected. I mean, remember, we had Senate by a thin majority, mm. very thin. We had it, White House, Senate, Congress, right? I mean, so yeah, I think Lori's spot on. Well, once again, the discussion has been um, uh, unsettling. Uh, 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 frankly, you know, we haven't gotten into, you know, some of where this could take us because it's clear now as it was not clear the last time all of us were sitting here talking that the 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 worst of this is ahead of us that what we thought was bad in april was merely a prelude um and uh that we are in in many ways no better off than we were then in terms of a national policy and in some ways we're worse off and uh then if you add to that the the likelihood of of second wave in the winter, likelihood of flu, uh, political transition, political campaign, uh, and the difficulties of getting anything done on a national basis in our kind of political system, uh, the, the months ahead look extremely worrisome. I'm, I'm afraid um, in many respects that, that we will be back having the kind of conversations you alluded to, uh, Kavita. But on the other hand, I feel we're very lucky to be able to have these conversations with you guys. Um, uh, you are smart and experienced and plugged in and, uh, and candid. And I think this does a big service to our listeners. And uh, we're really, really grateful for it. And we hope you'll come back sometime uh, real soon and that in the interim that you will stay um, healthy and that we, you know, we hope the same for all of you who are our listeners. And if you want to follow what we're doing and some of the special podcasts we're doing each week and some of the other special things we have coming, go to the DSRnetwork.com. And we just got in a new shipment of Deep State Radio masks. So, you know, order your Deep State Radio masks. And, uh, and, and we'll see you again um, next week, um, everybody. Thanks very much.